We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and now we come to chapter 23, verse 32, with Jesus on his way to the cross. Although it's a little bit strange for me to put it that way, he's carrying the cross. Or, or at least he's traveling with the cross because the last time we looked, Jesus was too weak to continue on carrying probably the horizontal beam only of the cross. He was too weak to carry that. It weighed perhaps somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. Too weak to carry that himself. The Roman centurion, knowing that the crucifixion had to take place, Uh, compelled a visitor from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, Libya, to carry the cross the rest of the way. And now we pick it up here in verse 32 where we read this. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. So again, Jesus was not the only one in this uh, uh, procession. There were two others carrying crosses as well. And when they had come to the place called Calvary... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. There was a specific place outside the walls of Jerusalem. Again, outside the walls and the gates, yet not far from the walls and the gates where people were crucified. It it happened, as the scriptures say here in verse 33, at this place called Calvary. And at that place called Calvary, Jesus Christ died for our sins. You could say that our salvation was accomplished at that place. Calvary itself means the place of a skull. And this place where criminals were crucified. Again, I just want you to be aware, this was an established place. It's not like Jesus was the first guy ever to be crucified at this place. It was the customary place where execution by crucifixion happened for the Romans in Jerusalem. I don't know how many people had been crucified at that spot before. Dozens, maybe hundreds. It was not an unusual thing. And it was a very public occurrence. Verse 33 simply says, there they crucified him. Now I want you to notice something that the text here, nor in any of the other gospels, does it give us any kind of physical description of what crucifixion was like. There's bare mentions about a nail here or about the piercing of his side, but pretty much there's no description about the suffering and the agony that the person on the cross bore. And I think one of the great reasons, or let me suggest two reasons for this. Number one, it's because as horrific as the physical sufferings were that Jesus endured on the cross, that was not his major suffering. The greater suffering that Jesus endured on the cross was not physical, it was spiritual. That's one reason. Secondly, in the days that the New Testament was first written, you didn't have to explain All you had to say was they crucified him. Okay, I got it. I got it. And this is horrible. What a horrible way to die. Friends, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but you could say that they perfected it. And it was a form of capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. Now, if you want to take a look at the traditional depictions of the crucifixion, 
There's Jesus on a very sort of antiseptic, almost sanded and varnished piece of wood. Very high up off of the ground, you know, sort of majestically above there with the light shining and the blue sky behind him. And that's sort of the classical depiction of the crucifixion. Friends, I want you to understand that the reality was probably very much different than this. And we know this because of an archaeological discovery in Jerusalem in 1968. In 1968, archaeologists discovered the bone fragments of a man who had been crucified in Jerusalem in the era of the first century. And this is what they discovered. They discovered that the posture of the man, first of all, had his knees bent at an extreme angle. In other words, the legs weren't hanging down straight, but rather they were probably bent at a very sharp angle. And it was surmised, and probably true, a crucified man wasn't very far off the ground. Literally speaking, you could probably go to Jesus and look at him eye to eye when he was on the cross. Now, there's one difficulty, and this may, may indicate that Jesus's cross was higher than normal because one of the gospels indicates that they took a sponge to him and they put it like on a pole up to him. But it's possible that they simply didn't want to get so close. It may not have needed it, the pole for the elevation, just because it was such a disgusting, humiliating spectacle to see a man dying on the cross that you wanted to stay as far away as possible. But they crucified him. They nailed him to the cross. And, and the physical suffering was extreme. The victim on the cross would suffer from the nails that were driven through his wrists. By the way, that's probably where the nails were driven, not through the hands, but through the wrist. And it severs a particular nerve there, which causes a clawing of the hand compulsively and a searing pain that shoots up through the arms. The victim suffered because the lacerated back endured through the scourging would scrape against the rough wood, especially as the victim of crucifixion attempted to get a breath. The victim suffered from restricted breathing. It was a very difficult position to breathe on the cross. And then the victim suffered. I don't say this to be gross, but just to be factual. From insects and pests and even scavenging birds and animals that would come and attack the crucified victim. Now, death by crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock, Uh, that would result from blood loss, um, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, a stress-induced heart attack, congestive heart failure leading to a cardiac rupture. But if the victim did not die quickly enough, although you should know this, that oftentimes the Romans were content to leave a crucified victim on the cross for days until they died. And there are on some occasions where the Romans would leave the dead corpse nailed to the cross for a long time until scavengers and such just picked away at it. Again, because remember, in the whole mentality of the Romans, crucifixion was a statement. It wasn't just a way to execute somebody. If you just wanted to execute somebody, then chop their head off with a sword. That was the merciful form of capital punishment in the Roman world. No, But if you wanted to make a statement, if you wanted to publicly make an advertisement that said, don't mess around with Rome or this is going to happen to you, then you would follow the process that they did for ancient crucifixion. 
But if the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken. (coughs) Excuse me. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken. And the victim was soon unable to breathe because of the posture of a crucified victim. Now, how bad was crucifixion? Friends, we get an English word, excruciating, from the process of crucifixion. Excruciating in Latin literally means out of the cross. It's associated with that. To, to say that Jesus' sufferings on the cross were excruciating is to define crucifixion in itself. But then notice this, verse 33. It says, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now it's easy, at least from a distance, to think of these three men being crucified and sort of lump them together. But there's one great difference between Jesus who was in the center of those two other crucified men. And there were many differences, but let me just highlight one of them right now. You could make a case that the criminals on either side of Jesus were victims. They were victims of their own foolishness. They were victims of the legal system. They were victims of this, maybe victims of bad upbringings, whatever you want to say. But this is what you must say about Jesus. Jesus was not on the cross as a victim. Matter of fact, even though it seems strange to say it and even counterintuitive, he was on the cross because he wanted to be on the cross. If he didn't want to end up there, he could have done it differently. But no, Jesus was not there as a victim, either of government or of circumstances. He was in control. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 18. He said this about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Even on the cross, Jesus was in control. Even on the cross, it could have been different, but he submitted to love. You could say, you could say that it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. That's what kept him there. Verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers and them with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. And saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Isn't it remarkable in verse 34 where it tells us that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Isn't it amazing how the love of Jesus never fails? (laughs) Even in the most extreme, even in the moment when you would think, Jesus, for just one moment, could you think of yourself? And he can't. He's thinking with mercy about those who are doing the actual work of executing them. He prayed for his executioners, asking God the Father to not hold this against him. You can say this, that Jesus was living out his own words. What did Jesus tell us to do in the the Sermon on the Mount? 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 says this. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good for those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Isn't that what Jesus told us to do? Don't you see Jesus living that out right there on the cross? That even as he hangs, or, or, or even as, as the nails are going into his wrists and to his feet, he's pleading with God the Father, Father, please, please forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You see, Jesus recognized the blindness of his enemies with that prayer. It didn't excuse the guilt of those who put Jesus on the cross, but Jesus, in an amazing way, He set his enemies in the best possible light in prayer to the Father. Can you imagine this? I mean, it's as if Jesus said, what's the most charitable thing I can say about the people who are executing me? I can't say they're nice guys. No, that's a lie. I can't say this. Well, I can say this. They don't really understand what they're doing. So on that most charitable basis that I can think of, Father, I will pray before you. Friends, isn't it remarkable? Isn't this how we should be as well? Think of your enemy. I don't know who your enemy is. You probably have one. If you don't have an enemy, maybe you have somebody who regards you as an enemy. But think of your enemy. When's the last time you deliberately chose to think a charitable thought about them? When you decided to pray for them in the best light possible. Where it's like, well... 10% they didn't know what they're doing, but 90% they probably knew what they were doing. I'll take the 10% and say, Lord, they didn't know what they were doing. Would you please forgive them? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that powerful example of the way that the love of Jesus never fails? Even so, look at it, verse 34. Verse 34 is the reaction of the soldiers. Verse 34, doesn't it read something like this? And the soldiers looked up on the cross and said, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us. Did they say that? Look at verse 34. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Even while Jesus is praying for those who put him up on the cross, they don't care a bit. They're shouting out lucky numbers and doubling down on the bets. Even as Jesus is praying for them. Friends, again, it shows us something about the way that we are called to love our enemies. It shows that Jesus came all the way down the ladder to accomplish our salvation, even to the point that that he even gave up his last possession. His last possession, the clothes on his back. That's all he had. Nothing else in this world did he have. And on the cross, he gave up even that last final possession. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 puts it like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. You know if you ever want to think of a man who financially speaking I'm not talking about spiritually or emotionally or anything like that but financially speaking had zero net worth it's Jesus on the cross. Nothing. His last possession was taken away from him and the soldiers were gambling over it right then. Yet nevertheless, through his poverty, we become rich. Then in verse 35, it says, even the rulers with them sneered. The soldiers also mocked him. Was Jesus 
encouraged or honored as he hung on the cross? No, he was scorned and he was mocked. Even his religious enemies said this. Look at this in verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Yeah, friends, do you understand that it was precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others? It's because Jesus abandoned himself to the wrath of God the Father there on the cross that he is able to save us. You could regard this as a temptation to Jesus on the cross. Jesus, we now tempt you to forsake other people by saving yourself. And Jesus refused that temptation and said, no, no, I will not do that. I will not save myself. Rather, I will be salvation for other people. And then verse 38. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now in John chapter 19, we read that the religious leaders objected to that title. And you could say that they objected to it for two reasons. First of all, they did not believe that it was accurate. They said, well, look, he's not the king of the Jews. We don't recognize him as king of the Jews. So they said it's not accurate. But secondly, they believed it was demeaning humiliate a man to such a low degree and say, this is your king? Don't you see you're sort of humiliating the Jewish people by doing that? But even though they voiced their objections, Pilate refused them and he would not alter this. And when he was asked to take down the inscription, do you remember what he answered? It's in John chapter 19, verse 22. He said, what I have written, I have written. It stays. Now that written title, that, 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 that charge over him. It was normally carried by the criminal on the way to execution. And then it was fixed to the cross so that everybody would know why that particular man was up on the cross. You know, our old friend, the Puritan commentator, John Trapp, he made a wonderful notation here. He said that it was written in those three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Because he wanted to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the king of religion. He wanted to show the Greek people that Jesus is the king of wisdom. And he wanted to show the Roman people that Jesus is the king of power. And all those things are true. So here we are with Jesus on the cross. Now, how long was Jesus on the cross? Well, the biblical text tells us, and I think this is told to us from the Gospel of Mark... You can put together the pieces and find out that Jesus was basically on the cross about three hours. Which was an unusually short time for a person to die on the cross. Normally people lived longer on the cross under that suffering. But what happened in those three hours? Well, let's look at one of the things, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying... If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that powerful? Now, one of the criminals crucified with Jesus joined in the mockery and the scorn. He reasoned that if Jesus were the Messiah, he should save those who were being crucified with him. Or or let me rephrase that. We know from the other gospels that they both mocked him and scorned him. Then those both voices that were heaping abuse upon Jesus. And you got to say, you've come down to a pretty low place when the people you're being crucified with are mocking you. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't get much lower than that. But then one of the men stopped. He stopped in his tracks and look at what he said in verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him. In other words, according to both Matthew and Mark, they both started out mocking Jesus, but then one of them stopped and said, no, this is ridiculous. He said, no. He rebuked the other one and he said, stop this. I want you to notice sort of the progression of this man. First of all, verse 40 tells you that this particular criminal, he respected God. He said to his companion, do you not even fear God? Secondly, he knew his own sin. In verse 40, he said, we are under the same condemnation. And in verse 41, he said, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. Do you see what he said? Friend, he said, speaking to his companion on the other side of Jesus. Friend, we deserve this. We are sinners. I am a sinner, but not this man. He knew that Jesus was innocent. Verse 41, he said, this man has done nothing wrong. Then in verse 42, he calls out to Jesus and he calls out to Jesus as Lord. It says, he said to Jesus, Lord. I like it. How first, the only words he has for Jesus are full of mockery and blasphemy and spite. But then he stops and he catches himself. But, but he doesn't address Jesus immediately. No, first he shuts up his companion on the other side. And he says, this is what I know about myself. And this is what I know about us. But this is what I know about Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. And then he addressed Jesus. And what did he say? Look at it there in verse 42. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you know what that means? Simply put, he believed that Jesus said who he was. Who Jesus, let me phrase this right. He believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus said, I'm a king. I've got a kingdom. And the thief said, you know what? You're right. I believe it. So Lord, would you please remember me when you enter into your kingdom, when you come into it. And he believed the promise of everlasting life from Jesus. Isn't it interesting that this man appears to be the very first person who trusted in the intercession of Jesus? So what did Jesus say? Verse 43. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, Jesus answered the trust of this criminal who had trusted in him and he assured him that his life after death would be with Jesus and would be in paradise and not in torment. You got to admit, this is something 
really remarkable. It is what we might call in modern slang or terminology, a deathbed conversion. Here is a man minutes or hours from death and he puts his trust in Jesus Christ and he's saved. And ladies and gentlemen, a deathbed conversion is glorious. I don't know if you've ever seen a deathbed conversion. I've been party to several of them. It is a remarkable thing to see somebody in the last hours of their life trust in Jesus Christ. But can I give you a stern warning here? God forbid that anybody in this room is trusting in a deathbed conversion for themselves. God forbid that anybody's saying, you know, man, you know, that, that religious stuff, I'll just keep it at, at far hand. But, but when I know I'm in deep trouble, then, then I'll trust in Jesus at the very end. Now, I'll say this, if you do trust in Jesus at the very end, he will not reject you. But do you realize that there is only one deathbed conversion described in the Bible? One. And it's well been said that there is one deathbed conversion described in the Bible one, so that no, would dis- no one would despair. They would say, yes, it's possible. Yes, it happens. But there is only one deathbed conversion of the Bible so that no one would presume and say, I should trust in that. And he promised the man that you'd be with me in paradise. Paradise is an interesting word. It's a Persian word meaning a garden or a park. And it was used in the Septuagint, that ancient Uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures to describe the Garden of Eden. And it just sort of became a buzzword for the future blessing and bliss of God's people. Basically, he said, you're going to be with me in heaven. That's basically the idea. Now, Jesus told him that. He said, you are going to be with me. Notice, Jesus answered the second criminal far beyond his expectations. It seemed like the thief on the cross had some very distant time in his mind. He said something like this. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, whenever that is, whenever that's going to happen. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that wonderful? You could also say that the thief on the cross asked only to be remembered. Lord, would you please remember me? Just remember me, Lord. And what did Jesus say? He said, listen, man, I'm not just going to remember you. You will be with me. Can you imagine that? Jesus going up to the gates of heaven. And, and I, I'm being flippant here. But an angel, who's that with you? Oh, no, he's with me. You will be with me. And then thirdly, you could say that the thief on the cross looked only for a kingdom. And what did Jesus offer him? Paradise. You see that? In everything that the thief on the cross asked for, Jesus gave him more. Now, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Think about it there, would you, in verse 44, where it says that there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. By the way, this remarkable darkness over all the earth 
showed the agony of creation itself in the creator's suffering. And it's recorded by an ancient Roman historian whose name was Phlegion. He made mention of this extraordinary solar eclipse as well as an earthquake, which would have been right around the time of the crucifixion. Now, one thing that I want you to remember about this is that on a natural scale, it was impossible for there to be a solar eclipse. Why? Because Passover always happened at a full moon. And I really don't know anything about astronomy or anything like that. But I've been told that a solar eclipse is impossible at the time of a full moon. And so there was something supernatural about this darkness at this particular time. But that's not the only thing. There wasn't only darkness over the earth. It also says in verse 45 that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Think about what a shock that was for those who were in the temple. It's torn. And Matthew chapter 27 notes that it was torn from top to bottom. In other words, it was not torn by men tearing the veil of the temple from the bottom up. But it was torn by God tearing the veil of the temple from top to down. And what was the veil a picture of? A veil was a picture of the separation between God and man. And do you know what God said? He said two things for that. First of all, he said, this separation between you and me, it's gone. I'm tearing it in two. Now I can be joined with man in a way that I couldn't before. The veil is torn. But the second thing it said, it's almost as if, and this is a crude analogy, so to speak. I mean, it's using very kind of clunky illustrations, but you'll get the idea. Basically, God dwelling in the Holy of Holies at the, at the temple. He said, let me out. No longer am I going to be confined. Not that God was technically confined before, but he wanted the conception to be loud and clear that because of the work of his son on the cross, it was all, everything was different. That he did not dwell in a temple made with hands. And all around when this was happening, verse 46 When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 46. It says this. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, notice this. There's a difference between what Jesus cried out with a loud voice and those words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Do you understand that from verse 46? So the question is, what did Jesus cry out with a loud voice? And the Gospel of John tells us he cried out with a loud voice. Matter of fact, he even moistened his mouth before he said it so that he could say it loud and clear. And he mustered whatever strength he had and he shouted out with a loud voice, it is finished. Isn't that beautiful? It's finished. He cried it out with a loud voice. He didn't mumble it. He didn't want anybody to misunderstand it. He wanted the whole world to know it is finished. Now, by the way, that is one word in the ancient Greek language. And that one word is tetelestai. And that great ancient Greek word tetelestai basically has the sense of paid in full. It was actually a word that they would write over a fulfilled bill. You know, when you pay the bill to whatever company, you write it to Telestai, paid in full. It is finished. It's done. And it's as Jesus cried that out. It is paid. Friends, that's the cry of a winner. Because Jesus, at that moment, had paid the full debt of sin that we own. And he 
finished the eternal purpose of God, accomplishing it there on the cross. That's powerful. If you want to give a sequential order of this, even though Luke does not note the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that before he said it is finished. Because Jesus in utter desolation of soul acknowledged this sense of being forsaken by God on the cross. Friends, there's great mystery here. There's great theological debate and looking at it from this angle and looking at it this angle. And and people want to ask the question, did the father forsake the son on the cross? And I'll give you that answer full of courage and say, yes and no. Let me say this on the yes side. There is no doubt that the son felt utterly forsaken. There is no doubt that Jesus was made the target of all the wrath of God. Not just the wrath of God that any one of us deserved. Wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't it be enough just for Jesus to bear the, 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 the sin of one human being? But he didn't bear the sin of one human being. He bore the sin of all humanity. All the wrath. All the guilt. All the shame. All of it was put upon Jesus and in the perfection that God alone can have because Jesus was God upon that cross, he bore it perfectly within himself. And at that moment, and I believe that's when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt utterly forsaken by God. I don't doubt that for a moment. But friends, let me turn it around to the yes and no to the no part. There is also a sense in which the father was never closer to the son than at that moment. Because as Paul will later tell us, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That Jesus was accomplishing the most holy act of love that the world, that the creation, that the universe had ever, ever seen right there at that moment. By allowing himself to be separated, at least in some sense, that we can't plumb the depths of, to be separated in some sense from the love and the fellowship of the Father. After that, after that was accomplished, then he could cry out with a loud voice, it is finished, paid in full. And then he said in verse 46, Father, Into your hands I commend my spirit. This shows us something. Jesus was no masochist. Jesus didn't look forward or relish the physical suffering of the cross. It wasn't like this, like he's going into a boxing match. Okay, come on, man, give it to me. Come on, I'll take the blows and I'll answer back. It wasn't like that. Because once the price had been paid, once It had been satisfied, the eternal purpose of God the Father. Once that sacrifice was so pleasing to God that it had satisfied everything, then Jesus, at that moment, he could say, I'm done. I don't need to endure this a moment longer. Just like, okay, I I paid it. Now I'll just stay up here for as long as it takes for me to physically die. Do you understand what Jesus did? Once the price was paid, he said, I'm done. I'm out of here. 
And what did he do? He commended his spirit to God. He yielded his living spirit to God the Father as he had yielded his body to death on the cross. And this shows us that Jesus gave up his life when he wanted to and how he wanted to. Nobody took it from him. He gave it up when his work was finished. Friends, Jesus is not a victim that we should pity. He's a conqueror that we should admire. That's exactly what he accomplished on the cross. So he deposited his spirit, his soul into the hands of the father. And then verse 46 said, having said this, he breathed his last. I read something from a commentator this week that I'd never really thought of before, but I thought it was very suggestive. He said that idea of yielding his spirit to God and breathing his last is an echo of the book of Genesis. When God created the first Adam, he breathed into him a living spirit. Now the second Adam paying the price that was first rung up and added to, but first rung up by the first Adam and added to ever since. Now he yields his spirit to God the Father and he breathes out his spirit, sort of completing the circle. The damage that the first Adam had done has now been redeemed in the work of the second Adam upon the cross. Verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. At the expiration of Jesus on the cross, The Roman centurion who was supervising the execution of Jesus immediately gave glory to God. And immediately he understood that this was a righteous man. Do you get the sense here that that Roman centurion had supervised the execution of probably scores, if not hundreds of people on crosses just like that? It was an everyday occurrence. Good heavens, on that day, there were three of them. I mean, you could have three, four, five a week. And who knows how long he had been doing that job. It was like, next. Next, next, this one. No, something different about this man. Surely, he said, and you can be sure he never said this about anybody else who was crucified. He said, certainly this was a righteous man. Jesus made a unique promise in John chapter 12, verse 32. He said this, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Do you see that it's already begun right there? Right there. He was lifted up on the cross and he's drawing people immediately to himself. He drew the centurion to himself right away. Then it says, verse 48, the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts and returned. The others who saw it, they went home with great sadness They were probably too close to Jesus to see what a remarkable death he had died and they forgot his promise to rise again. No, that would come in a few days. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, good and a just man. 
He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Verse 50 through the end of the chapter described the burial of Jesus. And the burial was performed by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. It says there in verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea hadn't gone along with the plan. Either he was silent and abstained from his vote or he wasn't at the council or maybe he vowed to cast a vote. No, I'm not in favor of this, but his voice was drowned out. And when Jesus finally died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea did a very brave thing. He went into Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. He openly associated himself with a man who was just executed. Friends, that's a dangerous thing to do. You're associating yourself with a man that the Romans said, this man deserves to die. Well, what have you done wrong that you associate yourself with him? So he did it at that exact moment. He went in and he asked for the body. And by the way, one of the other gospels tells us that Pilate was surprised to hear that he was dead so soon. So he asked for a confirmation from the centurion. And the centurion demonstrated that Jesus actually died. And he said, yes, he's dead. I know that he's dead. And they released the body to Joseph of Arimathea. And did you notice those words there? Look at it right there. It says in verse 53, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen. He took it down. Joseph Arimathea was a rich man. Now we know from one of the other gospels that he had someone assisting him. Who assisted him? Nicodemus. Remember that from the gospel of John? The one who came to Jesus by night and heard those words, you must be born again. Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, they took down the body of Jesus. As far as we know, they didn't have servants do it. Friends, can you imagine what bloody, disgusting work that was? How you'd have to have some kind of tool to pry the nails out. That you'd have to have some way for when the body to slump over your shoulders. And then as carefully as possible, go and lay it down to be prepared for burial. The Gospel of John tells us that they prepared Jesus's body for burial according to the burial customs of the Jews. And I don't have time this evening to go to it in great detail, but I can give you just a bare outline of the burial customs of the Jews. There's a whole system of preparing a body for burial in the Jewish customs that existed back then and even today. And the first thing that you had to do was wash the body and remove all the foreign material. Every splinter that was in the back of Jesus had to be removed. Every bloody place where the blood or the sweat was caked on or the mud had to be washed gently. Every thorn stuck in his brow had to be gently removed. His blood matted hair had to be washed and smoothed. Can you picture 
two rich men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, doing this weeping work over the Son of God. Can you imagine what through went through their hearts? Would you blame them if they said, Jesus, wake up? Jesus, please. Jesus, are you really dead? This is what makes me almost angry when you hear unthinking people advance a theory that sometimes gets called the swoon theory. They say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just had a fainting fit or something like that on the cross. Could you imagine telling that to Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea? They would probably punch you in the mouth. We washed his body. We prepared it for burial. We said the prayers over it and we had to do a hurried job. We didn't have all the supplies we needed. The women were going to come back a few days later and complete the job. But with what we had and the time we had, we did the very best job we could. We know he was dead. And they put him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And what's interesting is Joseph was such a godly man that he demanded that he be buried in Jerusalem. He was from Arimathea. That's why we call him Joseph of Arimathea. And usually people were buried, you know, in the place where they're from, in their town, where they live. But Joseph said, no, 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 I don't want to be buried in Arimathea. I want to be buried in Jerusalem. I want to be buried where the Messiah is going to return. I want to be married at ground zero for God's great word. That's where I want to be buried. But he said, no, I will gladly give up my tomb for Jesus. You know, the great lesson of it was, was he only had to give it up for a few days, didn't he? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Friends, we we leave it on a subdued note. Honestly, we do. And I want to leave it subdued. It's okay for us to feel the ache of the crucified and buried Lord. We'll come to the resurrection. You can read it tonight. It's, it's perfectly acceptable for you to read ahead. But can we just appreciate of all our Savior endured for us? You were the joy set before him. I don't mean this to sound overly sentimental. I'm not trying to paint a Hallmark card here or something like that. But it was the thought of rescuing you And being with you for now and eternity. That made this worth it for Jesus. I I don't know if you've ever undergone something very difficult. And somebody asks you, well, was it worth it? And you got to go, well, let me think about it. Jesus wouldn't have to think about it. Was it worth it? Yes. And he'd think of you. Yes, it was worth it. That's the greatness of his love. Father. All we can say, Jesus, is thank you for the greatness of your love. Thank you that you descended from your ivory palace in heaven, not only to live among us as a man and a simple, humble man at that, but you came all the way down that ladder from heaven, even to the lowest rung, the death on the cross and the burial in this tomb. Jesus, we thank you 
We love you. We praise you. We are so astounded that you did this for us. And it doesn't make us actually really think more of ourselves. But it makes us think much, much more of you than ever before. So we praise you together tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen.